Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You know, I was 25. I had 25, 30 employees. I was drinking about 14 cups of coffee a day, running three companies. And um, I start having uh, like heart palpitations, like I like panic, you know, like the like fast feeding. And I went to a cardiologist that, you know, my actually went to my, my father-in-law's cardiologist. He was in his 70s. So when I walked in there, like, what are you doing here? And they, they checked me out and they're like, your stress is off the, you know, off the charts. You need to, one, stop drinking so much coffee, but two, you're gonna have to make a, like a life change. You know, you're, you're trying to manage too much or you're gonna have serious problems. So, you know, um, it was, it was kind of serendipitous. You know, my release was always fishing and tying flies. That's what relaxed me. So as things started to wind down, um, my leases were up and it was kind of at the top and I kind of realized that I didn't want to be doing it anymore. Like it wasn't what my passion was. So I just wound things down. I remember I walked in right before Christmas and I told all my employees, there's a difference between quitting and quitting while you're ahead. And, um, you know, I've got a few options for you for places to go that you can hang your shingles at, but, uh, I'm dropping the mic here and doing something else before I get too old and kill myself with stress. So that's what I did. I'm Drew Chacon, and this is Tom Rowan's podcast. I tried to make my living fly tying one point. It was a short career, didn't last very long. I didn't know how to do it. And I did it only as a, as a means to kind of avoid getting a real job. I was a guide in Jackson Hole, Wyoming and decided to spend the winter there. The fishing kind of dried up about September, maybe early October. I do some fishing on my own for a while. And then it's time to buckle down, pay the mortgage. And, uh, I decided that I could maybe make a living tying flies. So I tied a whole bunch of flies for a couple of months only to go sell them all and realize that, uh, I was in big trouble. I could not pay the mortgage. I could not pay the rent. Well, it wasn't a mortgage at that point. It was just the rent. I couldn't pay it. And, uh, I realized that being a fly tire was going to be a tough road. And, um, I'm not a very good fly tire to on top of that. So that made it even more difficult, but the thing is, is that some people can make it as a fly tire. Some people can make it as basically anything. And I think that it takes someone who is, who is really determined and is not afraid to think outside of the box and do things a little bit differently. My friend Drew Chacon is one of those people. He came from a different background, a business background, and uh, 
decided he wanted to follow his passion after being super stressed out at age 25 and aging himself very quickly. He followed his passion, became a fly tire, and in the process of being a professional fly tire, he didn't just fill orders, he did all kinds of things. He did, he did uh, kids programs, and then he started writing books. This is an interesting conversation about how he made that transformation uh, from one career to another, how he thought outside of the box. We also go into uh, a whole bunch of stuff about how to publish a book, the difference between a publisher and self-publishing, and maybe uh, a publisher for a different type of, of a book uh, may be appropriate. But I learned a ton, and I thought it was really cool about how anyone can change careers and follow their passion. It doesn't have to be fishing. It doesn't have to be fly tying. This is a story about somebody that uh, decided he wanted to follow his passion. He was tired of being stressed out. And uh, good thing, because he has some amazing flies and uh, some amazing books. So check out this conversation with my friend, Drew Chacon. Hey, Drew. Man, I'm glad that uh, that we could make this happen. We've had more than our share of technical difficulties, but but we've, we're here. We're live. We're doing it. It's a pleasure. I've been following your your fly tying career for a while and uh, very impressed. You are not only a good fly tire, but you're also a good writer. And to my knowledge, you have 11 books. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. I appreciate that. Uh, I don't know if my uh, high school English teacher would have said I would have been a writer, but uh, that's the way it turned out. And I know that my high school English teacher would not have done that. We had a, I did a podcast with uh, the guy from the Speckled Truth and uh, he was saying the same thing. Like neither one of us had any potential of writing in high school. Right. And somehow you find something that interests you that you need to communicate or want to communicate. And then the next thing you know, you're a writer. Like, how, does that, <laughs> how does that happen? I, I kind of got dragged into it kicking and screaming. You know, uh, I was catching mangrove snapper on a little uh, shrimp fly I came up with. And a couple of my buddies said, man, you should do a step-by-step on that and write an article. And I kind of laughed like, there's no way I'm going to write an article. So uh, they kind of, guided me on how to do it and uh showed me how to take some pictures and we did the first one i think in 2012 uh for fly fishing in salt waters might even been a touch earlier than that but uh that's how it all got started for me and then it all kind of went downhill from there as far as banging out books and articles. Well, I'm interested in the whole process but so the your whole fly tying career started with a mangrove snapper fly. Yeah, what? yeah, my my disco shrimp pattern. Okay, it's, well that's more a little... than a that's more than a mangrove snapper fly, if you ask me. But oh yeah, it's uh it's kind of one of those utility patterns. I mean, I I tie all kinds of stuff for specific species, but I think the ones that uh, are in my box most of the time are the flats utility patterns. You know, a shrimp, a, a crab, and a kind of ubiquitous you know mullet fly. My mm-hmm. Tuscan bunny, those are the ones that I, I end up using pretty much for everything. So how did you, how did you even start fly tying? Way back when, um, when I lived in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes, it was frozen about eight months out of the year. And uh, I was probably six or seven years old. And I found a fly tying kit in the basement that my uh, fa- father and mother had. And they had been taking lessons when they were, you know, they first got married for something to do. I dug it out and read mom's notes and started messing around, putting deer hair on a hook. And just, you know, eventually my father realized that I was interested in it. So he gave me a few lessons, but it was more just, you know, killing time. I was poking around and found this box. It was like a... A pistachio green sewing box in the basement full of deer hair and tinsel. <laughs> and did you tie anything that worked? Yeah. So um, kind of what got it all going, um, my grandfather was a game warden and an FBI agent. And uh, he um, he was really into hunting and fishing, but he got brain cancer when I was really young. So he was kind of bedridden. 
I can still remember he didn't really know anybody's name. He, you know, was kind of on the way out. And I had been playing around with a fly pattern. It was basically a red tail, some um, mylar, silver mylar, and a, a chartreuse wing with a red head. Just something I had just been messing around with. And I was down on my grandmother's dock. And my, you know, one of my first casts, I caught a pretty significant landlocked salmon off the dock. And I was so excited, I ran inside. I don't know how old I was, you know, maybe 11 or 12 when I was starting to, you know, catch fish on the flies I was creating. And um, I ran up to his room and I came in with this bloody fish. My grandmother was like, you know, like, go show him. And he sat up in bed. And he, he said my name and he said, that's a real nice fish. And he hadn't spoken anybody's name in, I don't know, years. Wow. But he knew who I was he, and that the fishing triggered something in his mind and it brought it all back to him. And ever since then, I've just been kind of creating flies and doing it, you know, catching fish on them. That's an incredible story. Um, <laughs> it reminded me very much of of when I went uh, on one of my first guided trips ever. It, well, it was definitely my first guided trip. My dad took me to northern Saskatchewan, and uh, I had never been in an environment where the sun didn't go down, right? You're way <laughs> north. And yeah. so we get there, and it's like, you know, it's maybe 11 o'clock at, at night, and, you know, a bunch of kids, we were like, well, let's go fishing. And my dad was wiped out, tired from all the traveling. I mean, we, it was a long day. So he goes on to bed. He says, if you want to go fishing, go fishing. So I make a cast. I catch a, a Northern Pike, which I had never seen before. And I did exactly the same thing you did. I ran with it in my hand all the way to the cabin where my dad was staying. And, and, uh, I'm like, dad, check it out. And, uh, same, same kind of deal, man. Of course, your, your grandfather was on his last legs. My dad was just getting ready for this trip, but he was, uh, it, it was the same, same kind of thing that flashed a memory to me that I hadn't thought of in, in a long time. It's kind of funny how it kind of, uh, burns it into your psyche. You know, for some reason you just, uh, you know, you're going to be doing it forever, like yeah. from a young age. And for me, it was, um, I was always fishing. My first memory is with my father sitting on a dock looking at my red Chuck Taylors. You know, I, I don't know how little I was, but swinging my feet off the dock, looking down with a Zebco and a bobber. But, you know, I just, all my whole childhood was just hunting and fishing. Wow. That's cool. What did you hunt up there? Um, in the Finger Lakes, so, you know, the usual deer, you know, small game stuff, rabbits and squirrels when we were younger, uh, turkeys, a lot of duck hunting. Um, I still do a lot of waterfowl hunting with my, that's what my father's really, really into. So we do an awful lot of that. And now my wife's into it and we're trying to get Lucy into it. So, uh, you know, it's a family affair when we go to upstate New York. That's cool. Do you spend a lot of time up there or any, every summer? Uh, yeah. I mean, the whole fam family still up there. Um, I'm from a big Italian family, so I'm like the only one that made it out of upstate New York. Everybody else is, uh, they, they still love it there. For me, it's way too cold, but we go up about once or twice a year yeah. and they come down here to Florida. So yeah, once you but get that Florida in your blood, the cold weather's hard to, yeah, it's, it's you easy. Know. Yeah, I, I find that, uh, you know, cold weather's nice for a short period of time, a ski trip or, you know, a week here or there. But, uh, the, the, the thought of living. I just don't think I could go back. You know, we've talked about, Oh, what if something happened or, you know, could we ever go back up there with the, the big family? And sometimes you miss it. And then you go up for about a week and about day five, you're like, let's get out of here. (laughs) It is way too cold. I just get achy and cranky. It's just, you're, you're not used to it. Once you acclimate to that warm weather, it's, you know, it's, it's 80 or nothing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how did, how is it that you made your way to Florida? Uh, in 2003, I was working for a company in uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and they wanted me to come down and get the licensure for their mortgage title and real estate companies. So um, they sent me down um, kind of right as the boom was happening here. 
And um, that's what I did. I got all set up. Uh, now supposed to be down in Florida as their, you know, Florida president running their show. And when I flew back, they were like, well, um, you know, we're glad you got all the licenses. Um, we're going to actually change gears a little bit. You might be here. We might have our nephew run Florida. Well, you know, maybe you'll be down there as a vice president or something. And I kind of laughed, sent him my resignation and uh, moved down full time. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, here's what's going to happen. I'm starting my own companies. And uh, that's what I did. So I, uh, I, I got here. Um, and ran a mortgage and title company um, for till I don't know 2007. So uh, when when the state of Florida and the rest of the world kind of blew up in the real estate industry, so that was it. Then I got into fishing full time. So what does that look like? I'm I'm so curious. At always when someone makes a, a transition, and especially it sounds like were, were you married at this time? Yeah, we had, we, my wife and I just got married. It was, um, you could kind of see it coming, you know, um, it was just the wild west in the mortgage title and real estate industry down here. And, you know, when I started, it was, it was wide open. We all did really well. I mean, everybody did in that industry. You know, everybody was moving to Florida. The prices were going up on the daily. It was just insane. And then, um, you know, it got to the point where, you know, I was, 25. I had 25, 30 employees. Um, I was drinking about 14 cups of coffee a day, running three companies. And um, I start having uh, like heart palpitations, like I like panic, you know, like the like fast feeding. And I went to a cardiologist that, you know, my actually went to my my father-in-law's cardiologist. He was in his 70s. So when I walked in there, like, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. And they they checked me out and they're like, your stress is off the, you know, off the charts. You need to one, stop drinking so much coffee. But two, you're gonna have to make it like a life change you know, you're, you're trying to manage too much or you're going to have serious problems. So, you know, um, it was, it was kind of serendipitous, you know, my release was always fishing and tying flies. That's what relaxed me. So as things started to wind down, um, my leases were up and it was kind of at the top and I kind of realized that I didn't want to be doing it anymore. Like it wasn't what my passion was. Mm -hmm. So, I, um, I just wound things down. I remember I walked in right before Christmas and I told all my employees, there's a difference between quitting and quitting while you're ahead. And, um, you know, I've got a few options for you for places to go that you can hang your shingles at, but, uh, I'm dropping the mic here and doing something else before I get too old and kill myself with stress. So that's what I did. I let, I talked to landlords. We, uh, Leases all expired, and I just kind of walked while everything was still in the black, and uh, I got out just in the nick of time. Wow! So, did you have? Um, I mean, obviously, that that seems like a tumultuous time in your life. Like you're you're recently married, oh, and yeah. now you're making this massive change. What did it? What was it like talking to your wife about that? I mean, I'm well, obviously she- everybody's concerned about your health. She was in the industry as well. She was running a mortgage, uh, the mortgage department for a construction company. Um, and she had, when we got married, she came over and worked for me. And, you know, it's just kind of, okay, if we shut this down, we're, we're both going to have to go do something else. And, you know, she got into banking at that time, you know, just took a, a job and got in, which, you know, she's wicked smart so it wasn't really difficult for her to go get a job but for me like I was I don't know like a 26 year old CEO right so um, no one was really hiring entrepreneurs from the mortgage title industry because it was you know by 2007 the end of then there was you know 50 60 guys (laughs) with the exact same resume as me so (laughs) there wasn't a lot of options and I don't know. People get spooky about entrepreneurs. You know, they don't want to start them because they think, oh, well, we'll figure out how I make money and then you'll just start your own company. So well, it that, was that's it, kind of the definition, kind of yeah, the definition it, of an entrepreneur. Yeah. So it was tricky. Um, and I re- we took some time off and uh, we went up to North Carolina and her parents have a house up there in uh, Maggie Valley. And oh, yeah. um, Maggie, I know I re- Maggie Valley. 
Yeah. So I remember sitting by the fire and I said, you know, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to get into the, the fishing world and I'm, I'm going to do what I'm passionate about. And there might not be a lot of money into it, you know, to get started or whatever. But, you know, my only goal is to somehow get in. And that's, that was pretty much the start. You know, I love the, you know, trying to figure out a way to work in the industry and, the, you know, make my, my passion a career. So, so when you're thinking about that, like what were, what were your potential paths that you could have taken? Like, I, I always love those moments of, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to follow my passion. Now, what does that look like? Like, where does that lead me? Am I going to work in a fly shop? Am I going to own a fly shop? Am I going to, am I going to like guide? What, what does it look like? I, I kind of laid out all the options in my head and on paper and on spreadsheets and every, every way possible. And I said, you know, what, you know, there's, it's not going to be possible for me to jump in with both feet. I'm going to have to kind of ramp up. So I figured the fastest way for me to get into the industry was to have some kind of like credibility. So I started just trying to do as much uh, from an educational standpoint as I could, you know, join the FFF, got certified as a casting instructor, you know, started going to clinics and volunteering. I I worked at Bass Pro. I taught their, their kids class as like a PACE employee. So every Wednesday night, I would go teach the kids how to tie flies and it started out kind of, you know, three or four kids. And by the time they shut it down, I had like 30 kids every Wednesday and BPS was like, Hey, this is kind of a debacle. You know, we've got, you know, parents dropping off kids. You're, you know, we're opening packs of hooks from shelves. I mean, it was just a free for all. We were doing three flies a night you know, 30 kids, that's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of flies yeah. <laughs> being tied. So they said, you know, we're going to go back to tying clousers. And, you know, the problem is you're making it too interesting, Drew, you know, everybody really wants to know what you're going to do next week, but we want you to just tie this fly on Wednesdays. And then that way we, you know, they get into it, but it's not like every, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And for me, it kind of, lost its pizzazz as soon as they said I couldn't, you know, do the creative thing anymore. So, so, I mean, like you've got these kids tying some, some real flies, like, well, it, what's funny is my first wave, you know, and I, way back when those kids were, you know, nine, 10 years old, maybe, you know, some of them were younger than that. And several years later, um, I'm seeing them on Instagram, you know, they're, do, they're, you know, 17 years old, they're tying flies, posting pictures, they tag me. And I've gone to fly shops and seen my, my flies on the wall and said, wow, who tied those? And it was one of my students and they undercut my prices <laughs> and tied my flies. <laughs> so There's you know, your entrepreneur. Got, that's right. I I created my own monsters. Right. So, but yeah, you know, as long as you're improving the sport and kids are learning, that's really where, uh, what got me going is, you know, the, and that's how I, that's how I wrote feather brain, to be honest with you. After I started writing those articles and teaching the kids classes, they'd always want to know, well, why'd you do this way? Or, you know, why'd you pick that color? They had a lot of questions. And then the next thing that would happen is you let's say you you're tying a you know a shrimp pattern. Well, they would they would tie the shrimp pattern, and then you'd get on to like to do the setup for the second fly, and they'd be like, "Well, before we do that, I want to show you a fly I invented." And everybody was always inventing their own flies, and then you'd look at and they'd say, "Well, what do you think?" And my response was, "Well, uh, you know, do you want it to catch fish or do you want it to look cool?" Because they're two different things sometimes. You know, and a lot of times they had these really cool looking flies, but you knew they weren't going to ride right or, you know, they weren't going to look the same on the vice as soon as you get them wet or, and I ended up explaining that and, you know, well, how do you end up, you know, how do you, how do you design flies then? And that was the epigenesis of Featherbrain was a manual for kids or, or newbies 
you know, to get in the thought process of why, you know, why do you use this technique or why would I choose this material over that one? When do I use purple and black or versus chartreuse and white? You know, what, what are those scenarios and, and how do you do it? It was, it was a roadmap for people designing their own saltwater flies, which I wish I had when I got started. Right. <clears throat> so was that your first book? Yep. Featherbrain was my first book. Um, it it kind of came from uh, knowing the, the editor, let me back up, the editor of um, Fly Fishing in Saltwaters was friends with the um, with one of the guys at Stackpole, Jay Nichols, and they um, he saw that article on the Disco Shrimp and he said, hey, could you do more of these? And I said, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I'm not really a writer. And, you know, we kind of went back and forth for a few months and I sent him a few more and he said, well, listen, if you can get, you know, 14 of these things, we'll give you a book contract. And for me that, I mean, that was like winning a lottery. I I, never in my wildest dreams, I ever think I'd be having that conversation. So now you're, you know, this this seems like a pretty interesting time of your life because you're kind of working at Bass Pro. You got this kids thing going. You're writing these articles, and now here comes kind of a a, a book looming in the distance. Did you want to write that book because you felt like okay, this is this is what I need like to as a launching pad, or is this what I need to be able to pay the bills? Well, it was, it was definitely not a pay the bill. Um, <laughs> you know, I tell everybody if, if you're in fly time for anything other than the passion or, you know, the, t- the education of it, you're in it for the wrong reason. Cause <laughs> it's, it takes a lot of flies to pay a mortgage. <laughs> yeah. So I had a lot of other irons in the fire at the time. You know, I did consulting for Heinz and Sara Lee and, you know, as a supply chain logistics consultant. So Technically, my first book was one I co-authored on, you know, the food service supply chain way back when, um, as all this was happening. But it wasn't my first book in fly time. Um, you know, it was on a completely different topic. But that's a that's another story. But yes, I was doing um, I was doing a lot of different things to make money and still burning the candle at both ends, trying to stay relevant and get some traction in the fishing world where my passion was. So I was, I was always doing multiple things. I, I wrote Featherbrain um, right after, you know, my wife had Lucy and literally she'd get up in the middle of the night to, to feed the baby and, you know, I, everybody's up then. So I would write for a couple hours every night between midnight and two. So that's really how Featherbrain got written. Yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in the, in the process of writing a book. So you, you kind of have this, this editor that says, if you can get 14 of these type articles together, we'll give you a book contract. At that point, did you think, okay, well, I'll just write 14 of these, these kind of disco shrimp articles and piece it together? Or did you think, this, I can make this so much better than just 14 articles on flies? Well, um, basically, he's... Um, how do I say this? Yes, I had 14 I had to come up with, but there was so much more in my head that I wanted to, to put out there that I had to get the contract first. So I, I put together the flies I wanted to do. I shot the step-by-steps and I sent them over. And they said, okay, great. We understand. Here's the patterns that you want to do. What else can, could we add to this? So that's when I started to kind of flesh out the proposal and say, here's some other concepts. And at first, everybody I showed it to is like, you are out of your mind. <laughs> like, n- n- nobody is going to read. Even my closest friends looked at like my rough draft. And they said, Drew, I- I'm going to stop you right here. Like, no one cares about the UV spectrum on fly tying materials. Like, th- this is insanity. Like, fly tires are weird, but this is way too deep of a dive. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then when I wanted to put the skull on the cover of the book, they absolutely were like, no chance. That doesn't go with anything we've ever done in the past. There's no way Stackpole is going to have a book with a skull on it. So, I mean, it, it was a, it was an uphill battle, but it, it worked out in the end. Well, yeah, it worked out in the end, but I mean, so often, like, 
I think people that are super passionate about things know that if they're super passionate about it, and this is something that they would want to read, that there are other people out there, no matter, you know, maybe, maybe not that many, but there are other people out there that feel the same way. It sounds like that's kind of what you were thinking. Did you, did you, were you surprised at, at how well that book did? Yeah. Um, I was really surprised, you know, it, it kind of, it was unique. It was nothing like that at the time. I mean, it was fly tying books, but they were all like, Hey, it's Bob Clouser's book or Popovic's book. What was just his patterns and nothing really on developing your own style or techniques or, you know, how to do it. So once it, it hit, it, it was kind of, I don't want to say cultish, but it was, it was really weird. You know, people were reaching out to me saying, you know, I never thought about it, you know, these, in the, these ways or, you know, dying feathers with Kool-Aid. That's, you know, so cool. And, you know, it, it, it really got a lot of positive feedback um, from that book. And that kind of fueled the fire to keep going because it took me to, to finalize that book. I said, there's no way I'm ever writing another book. I was like, mic drop, game over. I did a book. That's going to be it for Drew. You know, and then a couple of years went by and kind of I could, I got the itch again. Really? What is it? What is it? I mean, what does it take to kind of get the itch? It's almost like, I guess, you know, it happens to women all the time. They, they have a baby and well, there's you a would big think... difference between... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, there's a big difference between working with an editor and and self-publishing. Well, I was going to um, ask you about me, that. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I really want to know, like, with the internet and everything that's gone on, I'm sure this landscape has really changed, and that's on my list of things that I wanted to talk to you about. But, sure. So, um, as I kind of mentioned before, in a previous lifetime, as I was getting into the industry, I worked as a supply chain consultant. And we, um, the, my partner and I were working on a book for people in the industry to kind of explain it. And he had written a book in the past and had an editor and a publisher and all that jazz. And he said, you know what, we need to learn more about self-publishing. And, you know, this was back in 2010, probably. So I did a, an awful lot of research. And, you know, it's, it's funny how the planets line up for you. But I had all that information and research in my hip pocket that I'd already done for him. It's how we, you know, went, we went through Amazon through their Creative Space program, and we got the book printed and published, and it shows up on Amazon. So I knew all about it, and I knew the process pretty well because we kind of, you know, waded through it together. It, it was it was laborious the first time, but after that, you know you know, it's way faster, it's easier. Um, so I knew that. And after I did feather brain, um, I said, you know, I love the way this looks. I love the distribution, but what I don't love is having a boss as an entrepreneur and, you know, a type a being on someone else's timeline and schedule and telling them what you can and can't do and how, how they want the book to look. You know, I, it wasn't the feather brain wasn't, you know, I wasn't happy with it. I just, I wanted to do things differently my own way. So I experimented with publishing through creative space. And that's how I did like the first two little books, which, you know, were supposed to be like eBooks. I was just going to mess around with, but then I was like, yeah, I, I might as well try publishing them. And they kind of blew up. So then, then I really got into refining the look and style of those books and doing them as eBooks and um, soft covers on Amazon. What does it look like in in terms of the the money? You get a you get a book contract through a publisher. They're doing a lot of the work. They're they're handling a lot of the distribution. They're getting it sourced and printed and all that stuff. Versus, I mean, how many do you have to sell on that model? And how many do you have to sell on the right. self publishing model to make the same amount of money? Let's say your book sells for $25 and you're a first timer and you go through a, a publisher. Most of the time you're going to make around a buck, buck 50 per book. And that's two years worth of work. If you could do the math on that, it's less than minimum wage. So you you're know? making a dollar 50 off a book like that. So there's $24 or 20, let's say $23 left over. 
That's who's, it. Who's getting all that? <laughs> not the guy that wrote the book. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I, I that's becoming very clear. But I'm just wondering, yeah. like, I mean, so you know, certainly I, within the day of bookstores, then yeah. like a Barnes and Noble or whoever is the is the bookstore is getting some pe- a piece of it. Yep. So they get there's a, a retail and a wholesale rate. So let's say the publisher makes their piece and then they sell them to a Barnes and Noble at you know let's say. $15 and then they make 10 or eight or something like that for the distribution channel. And as a consultant and a business guy, you know, my degree was in business. I, I started looking at the model and be like, wait a minute, I'm doing all the work and I'm not getting paid for any of this. Right. So, so that's when I, I really sharpened my pencil and took a hard look at self-publishing. Um, and that's way better. So you set the price there's a printing cost that, you know, depending on whether you go color or the size of the book, a number of pages, but you know, the profit margin there is, you know, nearly 50%. So it's, it's night and day. So once you have the credibility in the platform and you're established as a published author and you know, they, that's what Featherbrain kind of did. It put me on the map. And people, you know, acknowledge that, okay, this guy kind of knows what he's talking about. Maybe a little, maybe we'll listen to him for another book. And, and that's, and that's what I did. So I used Featherbrain to get me out there. And then I did, I don't know how many other books, soft covers in between before I published again with Wild River Press for like those, my new books, the three big ones, which is pretty much the roll up of 10 years worth of work for me. So you you went you went from a publisher to self-publishing and then back to this Wild River Press? Yes, it sounds crazy, but I knew that there's limitations when you self-publish. So for the style of book I wanted for kind of my legacy, I wanted in my mind a cookbook. And what I mean by that was I wanted a hardcover spiral bound with really high resolution photos and I almost like a coffee table book, but people don't just, you know, publishers don't throw that out there unless you have something to bring to the table. So I have, you know, I've been doing my newsletter for, I don't know, 81 months now. What is, I don't know what that turns out to, but, um, wow. So I have, I have these, you know, 80 plus step-by-steps written and, you know, in, in kind of, you know, my vault. So I'll, I'll rewind and tell you, another one of my buddies was writing a book on bonefish flies with, with Tom Pirro at Wild River Press. And he said, Hey, could you send me a few step-by-steps for my bonefish book on, you know, a couple of your favorite bonefish flies? And I said, sure, no problem. So I sent him over like 20. And within like the hour, I got an email from Tom Pirro that was like, hey, <laughs> you, you want to do a book? <laughs> so, um, and he said, how many more of these do you have? And I sent him a link to my archive. And he was like, sounds like we're doing three books. Wow. So that, that's how that all happened. And I said, the only way I want to work with a publisher again, because I really don't like having the monkey on my back, is if we do it the exact way I want. And the way I visualize it in my mind is like a three book epic tome, if you will, for everything bonefish tarpon permit, plus all my techniques, plus all these other weirdo things that I've been thinking about. But I want it spiral bound. I want a hardcover. I want to use photos from my friends, you know, that are, you know, fantastic photographers that are way better than me so um you know clue gave me all kinds of stuff for the title pages so and that's what it was you know it was just it was exactly the way i want it tom really did it upright and the books turned out great and that's why i went back to a publisher because it was really such a large volume of work that i wanted i wanted that um design piece and everything to to really come together. I knew it was probably above my pay grade to put something like that together. Really? seems like with a, with, you know, when you gain more and more experience that that would just be a matter of, I mean, I don't know that much about it, but it just seems like, you know, in the age of the internet, 
let's just take websites, for example. It was hard to build a website at one point. Then it, then WordPress comes out. It becomes a little bit easier. Then like Squarespace comes out. It becomes super easy. Now, basically anybody can create anything they want to without much training and without much experience. I would just think that the self-publishing book world would be very similar to that. It, it is. But there's a, there's a line of demarcation or a line in the sand, if you will, where you, it stops, right? So like you can do paperbacks, you can upload your own photos to a certain resolution. You can pick glossy or matte. You can pick eight and a half by 11 or whatever, but there's, you're still fitting into a box, and none of those boxes were hardcover, spiral bound. Gotcha. You know, 250 pages a piece. So, you know, with, with double page layouts and, and I really wanted um, a graphic designer to help me with the style of the book to, you know, make it look more finished. Not that um, my other books aren't pretty, but they're, they're very focused on the, the the flies themselves like really big pictures you know one picture per page um now i do two but at the time like that was reason the reason i wanted to self-publish was so i could show people close up and like the publishers i was using like featherbrain and sometimes it's like four or five pictures a page which are the size of you know a postage stamp or maybe a touch bigger than that and it just it wasn't what i wanted i wanted people to really be able to, to zoom in and that's why i released released them as ebooks as well so as a pdf you could zoom in and see what i was doing you know count the thread wraps right i mean it was i mean that's that level of detail yeah that's cool and that's also interesting and something else i, I had down to to ask you about is like why why books like in the in the age of of video and and you know you can get a very high definition camera now for very cheap. I mean, when I started doing TV shows, it was extremely expensive to get a, you know, a beta cam, which I always say we wouldn't prop the door open with the thing now, but it was, you know, those things were a hundred thousand dollars and, you know, you know, but now, you know, you can go to Best Buy and get something that would be remarkably good for very cheap. So I just kind of was, was thinking about that. Like, if you're trying to teach a lot of people how to uh, to tie flies or or get your techniques out there, why did you think that that books were maybe the best way or or the way that you were the most comfortable with? You know, it just it allowed me to kind of stop and get it exactly right every time. You know, taking a still and setting up the camera and moving the feathers the way you want, so you so they can see everything clearly. I, I did an awful lot of video when I started and it was always like maybe the spot I wanted was slightly out of focus or, um, you know, it's, Oh, that now the camera shots up my nose or my hands in front. <laughs> and I never, and I never knew until afterwards. And then I was like, Oh, I guess I'll try to retie that again. Or, so then I tried to get a camera guy to help me. Um, but I, I always, you know, was working during the day or working on something else and the timing was never quite right. So video was just never really that convenient for me. And, um, I, you know, if I'm happy to do it for other folks, I did all kinds of videos for, you know, sponsors I've worked with or, or an iCast. Someone will say, Hey Drew, you mind if we video for Vagabond Fly or whatever? And yeah, set up the cameras guys. Uh, I'll tie whatever you want me to, but it's, you know, I, I guess I wasn't really happy with my level of quality on the videos. I didn't want to put out stuff that was subpar for me. Yeah. Well, there are certain things that are that are timeless. And you mentioned a cookbook. Like, I think a cookbook is a great example. I have me and my wife, uh, mostly her cookbooks. But if we're going to cook something, you know, you have it on the counter like you're talking about with yeah. spiral bound and, and uh, it's open to the page and you can just go back and forth. And then, you know, you have a, a similar thing on the iPad or on your phone or whatever. And then you have countless cooking shows. And um, it just seems like um, there's a level um, of solitude that I want to 
absorb information at, you know, I put Lucy to bed. It's quiet. I go into my office, you know, I don't want to be on, I may put on some music or something, you know, you, but I want the book. Like I want to sit down and look at it and, you know, be able to go back. Oh, let me see what they did here and go, you know, but I'm trying to learn something. I want to be able to pan back and forth and being on the computer. Like if you're looking at screens all day, I just, I never want to consume information from the, from the screen. Yeah. You know, I, I go to my books, uh, you know, my, I have a collection of fly tying books that were my dad's and, you know, I just, th- those are the ones that that's my happy place. You know, when you pull out the book, you know, Dick Brown's got some amazing uh, pattern books. And sometimes, yeah. you know, if I just want to relax, I'll just open those up and kind of, just you know leaf through those well you're right like i used to pour over randall kaufman's book tying dry flies nymph tying manual um his bonefish book i used to just pour over those books and he would have he would have like you know an inset in there of every single fly that he tied and and they were all in color and you know i'm i'm just making these lists okay i need i need two dozen of those and i need 15 dozen of those and you know, I'm going to tie all these flies and I'm getting my materials list together. It just seems like the book is, is the way to go for the fly tire. I mean, of course, a, a video, like for a beginning fly tire or whatever, to really understand, or if you're doing some kind of really innovative technique that, that you've created or something like that, maybe video plays better, but, but I, I'm with you. I think that, I think, I think it's interesting. I think there's a place in, for books in certain things that will never go away. I feel is one of those, I believe. Yeah. I, I just feel like, you know, there's so much information online. Like if you go to YouTube and Google fly tying or, you know, search fly tying, there's a lot of information there, but not all of it's right. You know, or, or in my mind, you know, the way to do things. I mean, I, I guess there's a lot of ways to do it, but you know, anybody can do a YouTube video on how to tie a specific pattern, and it might not be the way that the designer originally did it, or this, you know, the techniques are different or whatever. And it's just a lot to process. You know, is is this the way to do it? Is you know, this kid's twelve years old and doing it, and the flies look great, but you know, I just, I don't know. I just, it wasn't my medium. Yeah. Well. The books are, uh, like I say, I, I mean, I, I'm fond of the books. I just, I just wanted to ask that question because there's, sure. uh, there's certainly, you know, plenty of, plenty of opportunity to do it other ways. Video, YouTube being, being one of them. Um, so what comes next? Are you, are you, have you, have you put your, your entire mind and life into these into these books and uh and there's nothing left to write or do you have further plans oh yeah i got a couple more in the works <laughs> right now you know i as i my newsletters kind of force me to keep writing every month and keep doing um step by steps and then as i do them you know i say you know that, that would be great you know this pattern in this way or this color would be great in a snook book or a you know a second snook book or man i wish i would have got this into the bonefish book but i guess i'll have to write another one so you know you just keep kind of adding to like well, what what's the next one going to be and like you said you've done so many of them that the process is pretty easy for me now um i've got a template of how i do things and you just they kind of snowball until you're ready to put them all together. So tell me about this newsletter. Why did you start the newsletter? I think I started it, I don't know, the first one was maybe 2000 and I can't even remember. I'll have to go back. But, 81 you know, months I, ago. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I did it to kind of share information because the newsletter wasn't all about, um, my flies it was about other people i i started inter- much like your podcast but um it was i was interviewing people on you know their patterns why did you tie this technique or why did you use these materials you know why is this fly effective has the pattern changed and that was kind of the the model for it all and you know any other interesting stuff that was happening you know a vtt meeting or a new material i found or you know it's just something to get it out there it started with 
eight people. Yeah. You know, I, I I wrote my first one and put it out there and I did it through MailChimp or whatever. And uh, I just said, oh, here it is, you know, if, if anybody's interested. And, um, you know, 81 months later, still doing them. I haven't missed one yet. My wife always asks me, you know, how long are you going to do them for? Because well, they're not always convenient. <laughs> no, no, it's not always convenient. And I love it that, you know, like when you were telling me about that, I kind of keyed in on that on that deal because I figured it probably started, I wouldn't have said eight. I would have said 50, maybe might've started with 50 people. And then you keep doing this newsletter probably with, I mean, did you, did you have any kind of economic goal, any, any way that you ever thought that this thing would turn into money? At first I didn't, but then after a while, people way smarter than me started to kind of guide my path a little bit and be like, you know, you could, you know, be selling your books through your newsletters or you could, you know, be promoting other things. You know, I never got like banner ads or anything like that. But um, yeah, after a while, it became kind of, you know, a tool for that as well, trying to trying to figure out a way to monetize, you know, what I was doing. Right. But I like it that, you know, you started out with, basically without that intention at all. And I think that most of the things that I see that are, that are the most successful start like that. Like they start with just, just the intention to, to help somebody. Like you're, you're just, you're just going to put out an interesting story or, or like this podcast. I mean, you mentioned it. That's, it's exactly what this is. Like, I'm just going to interview some of my friends and you know, they've got interesting stories and people should hear them. And then it becomes, okay, wow, like a lot of people listen to that. Like, wow, even more people listen this month. And this thing is really, you know, way bigger than I ever thought it would be. And the newsletter. But, but there's something to that, though, that when you start with no intention of ever really doing anything with it, and you're doing it for the sake of a bigger purpose, you tend to stick with it long enough to actually make it a real thing. Sounds like that's what you've done with your newsletter. I mean, you 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 said like you have 81 months of these and when someone asks for, you know, some writing samples, you have them right there and that turns into a three book deal. I mean, probably never in your wildest dreams when you were writing your first couple of newsletters did you ever think that something like that would happen. Exactly right. I mean, it was so far from what what the purpose was. I mean, realistically the I wanted to help the kids I was teaching, you know, um, I, I love the passion that they have and the excitement when they would tie their own fly. And the next week when they'd come in and have pictures of the fish they caught on their own flies, I mean, these kids were losing their minds over, you know, they created something a week earlier and then caught a fish on it. And then it, it was like that, that raving, um, you know, excitement. It was just, it was addicting. So every week I would say, okay, well, we're going to do this, you know, this step-by-step for this fly. Well, I was sick last week or my mom couldn't bring me. What, what, you know, is there any way you can show me again? So I would be like, okay, well, I'll end up, you know, just photographing it and shooting it uh, or shooting it and putting it out there and I'd email it. And then I was like, you know, I'd send these to everybody every week. It's a real pain. Why don't I just put them out every month? Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, my first one was uh, April 1st, 2013. That's cool, man. That's, that's really cool. That's a, that's a, that's a very good lesson, you know, for, for pretty much anybody in any field that that's how it starts. You know, I was listening to, uh, I was listening to Joe Rogan's podcast and, and he's, it's the biggest podcast in the world now. And that's what he did. He just started in his basement, just doing stuff with his friends. Cause he thought it was funny. And, uh, you just keep going and keep going and keep going. And then you build something up until it's, until it's something that you never thought it would be ever. And it's, especially if you, you know, you're doing it just because you like it, right? Like I, I don't have to do it. I, you know, it's, it's time consuming. It takes a lot of effort, but I like doing it because I like the feedback I get. And I feel like I'm sharing the information. I mean, for so long, fly tying was this shrouded secret, this craft, you know, especially saltwater fly tying, you know, like the keys guides and the flies they use. And there was no 
like step by steps anywhere for the Bowers crab for years. Finally, I was like, forget it. I'm just going to write one myself. And I, you know, tried to find Will Bauer and, you know, he had passed away. But like, it's that kind of like, let's get this out there. Everybody knows what this fly is, but no one knows how to tie it. So it was, it was kind of self-serving that I wanted to know how to tie it myself. So I would hunt down a lot of these patterns that I knew were productive. And I talked to the guy who designed them and he just never wanted to put it out himself. Right. Like he didn't, he wasn't a photographer. He wasn't a writer, but you know, he had a really great fly and, and I found that a lot of people really like the stories behind the flies. Yeah, that's you know? really a big thing. Because like you say, fly tires are weird. They're weird people, yeah. man. They really are. I mean, they spend a lot of time by themselves and they're they're very creative. Um, most of the fly tires I know are are extremely creative people. Um, and and extremely creative people are often a little bit odd. I mean eclectic. They they are eclectic <laughs> and and a little bit odd. And and there's almost always a story behind something like like behind one of these flies even behind the name of it like you you just you, you just hear the names of it it's like well that's because i listened to this, that song the more while i was tying yeah. it and it, it just like kind of stuck like the right around bunny pattern you and i kind of text back and forth this morning about it it's it's my it's like my go-to it's my ubiquitous you know, everything eats it. There's one utility pattern. It's the Tuscan bunny. And it took me years to tweak that thing. But the turning point, I was out to dinner with my wife and I watched this guy hand cut pasta. Mm-hmm. And, and I was, you know, it's something lit in my brain about running foam through a pasta cutter. Cause then I could incrementally adjust the sink rate of the fly. Where if I use deer hair or if I used a chunk piece of foam, sometimes the fly would get saturated and sink. Sometimes it wouldn't. And I wanted a way to tighten the screws to make that thing ride just underneath the water, like a finger muller or a white bait that was kind of skirting the surface and pushing that little V-wake. And I wanted to be able to adjust it with different hooks. So by using foam cut into strips you could spin it but you could also say you know what for a size two um hook i'm going to use 12 pieces of foam but for a size one i'm going to use 10 and i'm going to get the same result so it was scalable right and that's why tuscan bunny we were at its tuscan restaurant and i you know i literally said we have to go home right now my <laughs> wife thought i was out of my mind ruined her night <laughs> yeah as soon as i saw that guy cut that pasta I was like, we are gone i grabbed the no, cutter and that's amazing because I looked at that and I thought, well, that is a great idea. That's somebody that spun a lot of deer hair and thought this isn't the best material for this because I used to use these, um, what we called a frog and it didn't look like a frog. It was just like a tarpon fly, but it, it was just a spun deer hair thing. And, and it would, you would need it to, to sit up enough to where it would push awake. If it was all the way up, it was even better. But if it was too far up, then the tarpon blows it out of the water when they come to eat it. And it was very exciting. But There's a would... sweet spot on those bugs though, right? right. A level yeah. of saturation yeah. that was like the money. Yeah. And so I saw, and, and so like I, I used to use the gurgler a lot, but they, the first gurglers came with, you know, feather, feather tails. And yep. they were so lightweight that a tarpon would just blow it right out of the water. It would just or push it forward. Them. Yeah. yeah when, they, so, when they came up, that wake off their head, like same with redfish. They right, can't exactly. eat it. Exactly. And so then it was very exciting and awful, really cool and stuff. But so I started tying a longer rabbit tail and a rabbit body on those, hoping that that would hold the water enough to where you could actually get them, you know, you could make contact with one of these fish, but still I was always having trouble with, okay, now it's pulling it down too much and the fly, the foam's not, you know, doing right. And it wants to spin in the air and all this other stuff. And so you're constantly screwing around with these patterns. And when I saw the way that you had done that Tuscan bunny, I was like, that is genius because if you wanted it to float more, you just put more of it on there. If you want it to float less, you just trim it back a little bit or, or, uh, you know, use more rabbit or whatever, but it was just like this epiphany that I had of seeing that going, dang, man, how 
did I overlook that? I mean, I don't consider myself a, a, a fly tire uh, only out of necessity. Like you come home and you're like, I saw this crab get eaten and I need something that looks like that. And you That's go to the it, vice. Yeah. It had pink spots. We got, so we need something pink. Yeah. You know? And I need it to act like this. And usually it's a, yeah, it's a failure for the first few until you kind of dial it in a little bit or find another fly that maybe, maybe you can like, I, I mean, I would be like, okay, well that fly looks great, but if I had this head, you know, design on that fly, then it would be great. And I think that's how like, uh, you know, the Merkin becomes the toad becomes, becomes all these other things because people, you know, actual people that are out there fishing are looking at them going, okay, that's cool. Or, or like the Merkin, for example, <laughs> you throw it over there to a permit and a tarpon swimming by and you're like, well, I don't want to catch that right now because there's more permit coming. So you pull that, that Merkin, like you're going to false cast it or pick it up out of the water. And the tarpon rushes over there, like nothing you've ever seen. Like he's been waiting for that thing for 50 years and he eats it. And you're like, well, I think maybe I need to tie some flies that look like Merkins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, it's, it's funny how many times a fly evolution happens when you're trying to fix a problem or there's a happy accident. Yeah. You know, and my disco shrimp we talked about earlier, um, the reason that sequins on there and is the gurglers, which piece of foam with a lip uh, facing up, mangrove snappers can't eat it most of the time because when they come out they all rush at once and that little wake of the whole school coming pushes the fly out beyond their comfort zone mm -hmm. and they all go back underneath the bushes right, right so the sequin is like holding a kickboard up in the pool it, w it won't allow it to move mm, good idea that's awesome yeah that's just problem solving that's yeah. it well that's that's the thing and once you finally get one it's amazing how it can, it can just achieve like worldwide underground hand to hand kind of like somebody just passes this on and passes it on and passes it on. And all of a sudden you've got like a, a full on pattern, a worldwide pattern. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've enlisted the help of my buddies that are, you know, boots on the ground, guys that are fishing every day, guides and you say, I'm going to send you a, a bag of flies, fish these and give me your honest opinion. What can we do? What can we tighten? What can we change to make it better? And that's, those are your eyes and ears. You know, a lot of, you can, you can always tell the difference between a tire that um, ties flies that look great for magazines and on the wall and guys that tie flies to catch fish. Yeah. There's a big difference. Well, not always, you know, I mean, there are a lot of artistic people in both Oh yeah. Uh, in both realms. But the, the, uh, the guy that's out there catching fish with them, usually their flies are, are more durable. They're, yeah. they're tied with different materials that are, you know, it's not a one fish fly because that guy, he just worked 12 hours. He doesn't want to sit in a device yeah. all day. He wants a fly that's going to work today and tomorrow, the next day. And one fish, one, one fly might catch, you know, six or eight fish. And, and it doesn't take him 40 minutes to tie right. it. Right. And it also doesn't foul. That's Oh yeah. That's the key for saltwater if anybody's out there that ties flies. The 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 fouling fly is just the the that's the worst thing in the world. But um that's your world, man. You're the one that you're the one that is all good at that. <laughs> there's just, a there's a whole chapter in Feather Brain about fixing flies that foul. Really fixing them. Yeah, fixing <laughs> flies, chapter three. <laughs> I uh, I just fix them by throwing them in the trash can. Sometimes yeah. dozens at a time, if they if they foul, because there's nothing worse than having you doing. You finally do everything right, or your client. You finally get a client. Oh, that's the worst. Every, he finally does everything right. The boat is in the right position. The wind's the right way. The fish is acting the right way. The cast actually lands near where it should strip, 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 here it comes. And then it turns away and you pull that fly in and it's fouled. And you just know, man, that yeah, yeah. that's a something that was controllable. A little piece of you dies as yes. a fly tire when that happens. <laughs> well, it certainly dies as a, as a guide. I can tell you that the angler sometimes doesn't know the difference, but the guide is just like, man, that was a controllable thing. That's something yeah. that, that you could control. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's cool, man. So 
if somebody wanted to get on this this um, mailing list of yours, uh, the newsletter, how would they yeah, do that? Yeah, they, they just go right to Salty Fly Tying and sign up. Uh, it's you know right on the main page. Sign up for my newsletter. And you you'll got, get like an email that says, uh, yes, I want to be on this list. And you, you know, you get to, uh, click the follow up email and you'll get them or you can just go to the archive and get all the old ones. And can they They're buy all, all your books there. there too? Yeah, everything's uh, on my website. Um, the big books, the the new set through Wild River Press, they're sold on um, topsaltwaterflies.com. But because um, he, he does all the fulfillment on those. But all my other books, I do them um you know right off my website cool man well ebooks as well i appreciate you uh i appreciate you sitting down with me today and and more than anything i appreciate your patience because uh you won't know this by listening to this particular podcast but drew and i encountered significant technical difficulties in order to make this happen so uh he was very patient i appreciate that very much we adapted and overcame yeah. as a fly tire i told him i got nothing but patience <laughs> well I, v- I very much appreciate it and uh look forward to getting out on the water with you one day i'd love to love to see how you fish your flies i think that would be fantastic too that'd be uh, great anytime you check out some new patterns that, that you've got and just see kind of what you're what you're looking for because i'm i'm not a i'm not a good fly tire i'm i'm a utilitarian fly tire but i do appreciate the art very much well i'll bring the bugs and you show me where the fish are and we'll break them in sounds good man all right drew thank you so much and uh if you want to you want to get that newsletter head to his website sign up for that and uh and uh also you've got social media right oh yeah i'm on instagram facebook you name it so Probably the best is Instagram. It's under Dr. Chacon. Okay. Go check that out. All my bugs are on there and give you ideas, stuff for you to tie as well. All right. Sounds good, man. Drew, thanks. We'll see you soon. Uh, my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.